Coming up this hour, the divorce rate in the U.S. has hit a 50-year low, and then how to protect from burnout during a pandemic. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on a Thursday afternoon. Hope you're doing well. So, Ian, how are you today? I am fine. Let's do the whole show that way. Speaking that way. How are you? <laughs> I, oh, I don't. I wasn't. Oh, I didn't mean to. Is that how you asked the question? I certainly wasn't trying to mock you in any way. No, no, I did not feel you were mocking, but it was just okay. funny. It was, okay, but good. it was a very robotic start by both of us there. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the, I think they call that mirroring or, or paired. Yeah, the, the, I'm that way if someone has an accent. I can't oh, that's funny. help but start to want it's I have to be really conscious about uh because it sounds like you're mocking them. <laughs> yeah. Well yeah, if you're I mean, we are interviewing an Australian later in the show, so I'm gonna have to try really hard there. Yeah, it is I can feel it creeping in, southern accents, British accents, it doesn't matter. And it's just subtle enough that I'm sure the other person's like, What is this guy's deal? Like why is he yeah, I got to be I shouldn't be telling anybody this. This is embarrassing. You're making fun of me, man. Right, exactly. I'm just I can't help it. My my brain wants to like adapt. Oh, that's wild. And you did say where you're from. What did you say? It's like the perfect uh non-accent or perfect like Well, uh, yeah, when I so when I got my degree in telecommunications, at least at the time, um what we were instructed was that the broadcast journalism Ground zero dialect is southeastern Michigan. That's what they told us then. I don't know if that's still the case or not, but it was like quantifiably, I guess, considered in the broadcast world, the the non-accent region of the Fantastic. country. Yeah. Where I grew up in New Jersey, outside of New York City, that is not the case. That <laughs> is accurate, 100%. <laughs> and anyway, we are uh, glad to have you with us today. So I wanted to read... Uh, Rather than lately, you and I have been doing lots of kind of news stuff in the first segment, but I I wanted to read from an op-ed from the editor-at-large at at Christianity Today. So he's talking about the huge voter turnout. It's entitled uh, 144 million and counting. And uh, I want to read the second half of it and then um, get your take on it because I found this really interesting. I think it's it's just a good way to start the show. He writes this. The historically high voter turnout does not guarantee meaningful change. The enormous numbers may only intensify division and stiffen resolve. Social media is sure to keep resentment simmering until the next conflict. For our part, we've encouraged followers of Jesus to put away their weapons and to move past mere civility towards true love as an expression of justice and compassion. We've called for unity despite competing visions of church for the sake of the kingdom of God and Christian witness. Loving our friends and our enemies alike remains the hallmark of Christian discipleship. Despite any ongoing political fury and viral anxiety, God is on the throne. This phrase can come off as an expression of helpless resignation or disengagement, but as biblical reality, the enthronement of God and the Lamb invites us to yield to greater truth. To approach a throne means taking a knee. In our culture, kneeling has become mostly associated with protest and marriage proposals, but in churches where it still happens, kneeling is the posture of prayer. I'm an age uh, when kneeling mostly hurts and is hard to get up from, but when I manage it, I feel the humility such a posture intends. To kneel is to humbly accede to greater truth, whether it be liberty and justice for all under the law, undying devotion to one we want to marry, 
or the wholehearted worship of God. And he ends this way. This is Daniel Harrell, the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. Worship and obedience, repentance and grace, these recalibrate our priorities and refocus our eyes on Jesus. As the light of the world, Jesus sheds light on the path of righteousness, a road on which we must still bear our crosses, a burden made light by the Spirit's strength. The Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people, a power that turns even hardship to joy. Our hallelujahs need not wait for the last day. So that's kind of how he ends his op-ed talking about voter turnout and politics. And I found that really encouraging and uh, it helped me today when I read that. So I don't know if you'd read that yet or if that's your first time hearing it, but what are your thoughts on his words in that, in that op-ed? I, I think the phrase that stands out to me the most, honestly, is the call to something greater than civility. We've, I mean, we've even done articles yeah. with civility in the, in the title, like the, like the rationale for civility or the case, oh, case for civility, I think is the one that we read, um, which I, I still think is a good article and made a lot of really good points. But I, I really resonate with the idea of moving past civility toward true love as an expression of justice and compassion. I think that's really important and kind of a little bit of what, you know, the Mitch album article yesterday mm-hmm. was saying, Hey, regardless of who's in what office, if, if we don't change, as a people, how we behave toward one another. And he, and he wasn't coming at it from a a Christian worldview necessarily, but I, I do sometimes worry that, especially in Christian circles, we've sort of co-opted love to be a synonym just for like tolerance. Like, can't we all just like get along? And I'm like, Oh, I think love is way more robust and way more difficult and way more enigmatic than just, let's just not rock the boat or let's just keep the peace, which I get the appeal of all of that. Like we feel like we've been in a storm, you know, all year. I, I get the appeal of like, can we just please stop fighting? I think part mm-hmm. of what he's calling us to here is something, something more profound than just simply the absence of conflict. And I, yeah, I appreciate that a lot. It's interesting when he talks about that phrase, God is on the throne. Uh, something that I've said, uh, I would say every Sunday for the past month in our church. Uh, and I did read an interesting article the other day that talked about how this person didn't find that helpful, but instead felt it like he's saying here, how it comes off as resignation or disengagement, kind of like, oh, God's on the throne. Don't worry about it. Right. Uh, as opposed to that. And that, that struck me because I've been saying it as like a uh, man that anchors me, that gives me hope. It gives me perspective that this isn't uh, you know, ultimate, you know, I, I think we tongue in cheek said Jesus isn't on the ballot, right. But he's on this throne. Uh, and so, uh, wondering that phrase has people been throwing it around God's still on his throne. Do you find that to be a helpful phrase for you? And are there dangers in that, in that right now, uh, with all that's going on around us? Oh, I, I think it's a both hand, to be honest. I mean, I actually, yeah, can you explain that? I think you mentioned that the other day. So I wanted to hear you kind of explain that. A little I bit. did. Well, yeah. And I, I even, I don't know if I tweeted it or it doesn't matter where it was. I, I said something like declaring that regardless of what happens, Jesus is still king does not excuse us from working for justice and healing and restoration and reconciliation. That's mm-hmm. That was part of my point. Sometimes it can feel like the Jesus is still on the throne phrase is like a new version of a let go and let God, which mm. – at times, that is absolutely the the right charge. Like, hey, man, you're really like stressing or holding on to this. You need to you need to kind of relinquish that. You got to surrender that to God a little bit or a lot of it. You know, uh, I think part of the danger, though, is when like what you were saying, when we make that declaration as an excuse for us to then just become passive observers. Like, well, 
ultimately he's he's still king or he's in control or he's on the throne or any version of those. Um, I think honestly, and I don't I didn't quite say this in the post, but I think it's because he's king that we then work for justice, healing, reconciliation, and restoration wherever we're at. Like we we still have a job to do, so it isn't this. Ah, it doesn't matter who we vote for or what happens and what I, like. Right. Oh, that all still matters, and we still have a responsibility as Christ followers, regardless of who occupies those offices and those seats. You know, to be a people that are are working for those things. And that's that was part of part of my uh, mm-hmm. my caution and my concern. But I, you know, I, I think the phrase still has a lot of power and is still obviously true. Right, right, right. Well, this is a great editorial. I wanted to kick off the show with a Christianity Day by Daniel Harrell. Uh, their editor-in-chief, called The 144 Million and Counting. A historic election turnout augurs well for American democracy, but there is greater truth than voting can determine. Check that out at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, I want to discuss uh, a really kind of chilling and um, disturbing ad that's out there that you actually texted to me last night. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to talk about it a little bit here next on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you with us today. Uh, Hope you're having a great Thursday afternoon. It's beautiful out there, but going to turn cold here on the weekend. And uh, Ian, this is apropos of nothing, but I had a moment today that I realized next week, my daughter, my youngest daughter turns 17 years old next week. Wow. Like, talk about like having just like 17 feels like. Each of the years feel old. Like you probably feel it. What's what's your oldest? Three right now? Three, yeah. <laughs> you probably felt it when he turned three. Like, where are the years going? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? for sure. But for sure. But 17, we're looking at college stuff. I don't even know why that just came up. Next week, it's on Tuesday. So when we do the show together, I just might be a blubbering idiot while you uh just ride the show. <laughs> well, you you definitely were when she turned 16, so I'm anticipating the same. <laughs> it's gonna be one after the other. It's every year. <laughs> Oh, what a big move. Anyway, uh, that's set their calendars by. They're like, you really got to tune in to this show every year because it's the most emotional Brian (laughs) is all year long. You want to hear just crack a cat's in the cradle, just the background (laughs) playing. (laughs) So that is my my daughter, Madeline. She'll be 17 next uh, on Tuesday. So looking forward to that celebration. Uh, Hard right turn here. You sent me a text last night. What people should realize, uh, you and I will text often. Hey, did you see this article? Hey, did you see this? And that's kind of how we put the show together a little bit. These will end up in in a shared document we have, and then that's kind of how we put the show together. And it's it's kind of like a you know you see something online, you shoot it my way, and vice versa. And last night you sent me one uh, that was uh, I was like, man, what is this? And clicked on it uh, from a web website called Forever uh, for Every Mom, and it just says watch. Chilling pro-abortion ad says smiling baby, quote, deserves to be a choice. Now, you kind of have to see it to grasp yeah. kind of the the what makes this so disturbing. But why don't you paint the picture for people? Maybe read a little bit or or just paint a picture for for what it is. Yeah, you, you did admit to to being uh, a bit surprised at first because the the <laughs> ad is called The Chosen. And if you've listened to any of the show, you know that friend of the show. And previous Media Mondays co-host, Dallas Jenkins, who is the creator and director of The Chosen. Um, I sent it to you and you're like, wait a minute. Is The Chosen now making ads? Like, are they a part of some campaign or? Why this ad? It was surprising. And you already set it up. But I think, yeah, it is worth actually watching. There's not much to the the commercial itself. It's like a really 
uh, close, tight shot of like a young baby. And then it um, it goes back and forth between that shot of this baby, you know, like kind of giggling and just being a cute baby with text on the screen. So the first screen reads, uh, she deserves to be loved. She deserves to be wanted. And then it goes back to the baby and then back to the screen. She deserves to be a choice. So I, I don't even know how I saw this article. Um, it was such a su- surprising angle like the headline reads chilling for me it was almost like how i was honestly trying to understand how how did you think that that was a helpful strategy like that's part of what i found so chilling about like literally in my experience and this is very very limited the vast majority of people making pro choice cases are often trying to uh, diminish maybe the yes. humanity of the baby, you know, in order to, I don't know, to make it more, to feel more disconnected, I guess, from, you know, make it sound more, you know, medical or cold or calculated. This is like literally the start of the ad is like lullaby music in the background, close, tight shot of like just a beautiful, adorable, tiny baby. Just giggling. Giggle. Yeah. Like it just, oh. and then for it to end and just to see the words. She deserves to be a choice. I legitimately was like, who, how is that helping? Like what it, from their perspective, I mean, I'm really trying to get in the brains of the people that put together the ad. Like, how do you think that is good? I, I don't know. It was, I mean, I sent it to you guys for a reason. Cause I was like, I don't even know what to make of this. This is so bizarre and, and heartbreaking. And I haven't seen the ad anywhere. So who, I, who knows if it's, you know, airing anywhere anymore. Now it says the ad is from 2015. Um, so maybe some focus group somewhere was like, that's, you know, a, a terrible ad. I have, I have no clue, but I had never seen it before. And, and I found it really startling. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think what was startling about it, like you said, um, was much of, uh, what Planned Parenthood does or other pro-choice movements is to kind of disassociate the fact and try to get as far away from the fact that this could be a baby and a life. Right. Right, Like it's. And so this kind of ran the other way. This was an adorable baby just giggling with these words up. And and I watched it going, you have like this is like next level kind of darkness and and kind of. um, uh, Yeah, darkness is the best way I can describe it, because. Uh, usually the argument goes, you know, it's not really a baby until the baby's born or whatever else it might be, uh, just a clump of cells. Um, but, but this was kind of saying that this baby is better off not living than not being wanted, uh, was just kind of next level. And I don't know what it did to for you. I watched it and just kind of needed to take it in a little bit after you sent it to me. Um, because, uh, I, I guess I would ask this, this is, you know, whoever put this out, this could be a fringe group, whatever. But but I would ask this, what does this say about what some people believe uh, on the pro-choice side uh, of the abortion debate? What is, um, I, I guess I'm asking it in a poor way. What, what's your takeaway from this? What's, what, what is it, what does it kind of do for you as you saw this? I mean, what it didn't do anything for me. I feel like it certainly did things to me, like to the me. article, also, a better way to put it. The article also asks the question that I had to like, who let their daughter be used for this commercial? That, that was the other like strangely humanizing part that I'm like, somebody had to write this 
script and this concept and a board had to approve it. And then someone said, oh, yeah, you could, you could use our daughter for this ad. I was just like, that just feels so Twilight Zone to me. Like, I don't understand that. Like you were saying, disassociate is probably the right word. That does seem like that is often the predominant argument or tactic, you know, the clump of cells versus uh, human life. And that's often the most heated part of, of the discussion in this very heated debate uh, most of the time. So to sort of not even, I guess that's part of why it's so jarring. I'm so used to like that dichotomy, like the, oh, I know the cases and sides, the side's going to make, I know the cases and sides, this other side's going to take. This to me was like such a, such a bizarre approach and, I'm saying bizarre, but it it also is. It was heartbreaking to me, and the whole premise that like a baby deserves to be chosen, right? Not mm-hmm. to keep like banging the adoption drum, but there there are literally tens of thousands Absolutely. of couples that are are that is the deepest cry of their heart that they could choose mm-hmm. a child, right? Yeah. And again, we could yeah. talk about you know how absurdly expensive it is in this in many countries to adopt and all that. And I, you know, I've never done it. So I don't want to say that I know what that looks like, but even for that to be almost like your punchline, I wanted to like yell at my computer screen. I'm like, there are already so many people crying out for the opportunity to choose a baby, like the one pictured in this video. And I, yeah, now I'm getting heated, but it it definitely, definitely, um, it, it was shocking. I'm still, I'm still jarred by it, to be honest. And, and for that reason, I, I debated whether to even talk about it and have it up. But I do think you saying I'm getting heated, I, I that's kind of why I want to do it, not to get you heated, but to get all of us just kind of like, oh, my gosh, like this, like it's kind of a wake up call. Right. It's kind yeah. of a, a slap across the face. And sometimes we need that yep. uh, right. to go. OK, yeah, we've got to keep um, uh, we, we have to keep up this uh, this battle, if you will, for the unborn. And so. Uh, you can check that out on our Facebook page. It is disturbing. I'll I'll grant you that. Um, but I think uh, it raises an important topic again. Well, coming up next, we're going to uh, talk about some good news, I think, uh, about the divorce rate in the U.S., some numbers, and then ask what exactly does it mean. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us added an article at a uh, website called in, for the Institute for Family Studies called ifstudies.org says this, the U.S. divorce rate has hit a 50-year low. Uh, that headline might sound surprising to a lot of us because uh, I think a lot of times we hear divorce is up or marriage is kind of, go, you know, uh, people are taking marriage less seriously or whatever else. So let me read some of these stats. Okay. And then Ian, I would love for us to try to mine what do we think is behind this and and what do we make of this news? So it says divorce in America has been falling fast in recent years, and it just hit a record low in 2019. For every 1,000 marriages in the last year, only 14.9 ended in divorce according to the newly released American Community Survey data from the Census Bureau. This is the lowest rate we've seen in 50 years. It's even slightly lower than 1970. A lower divorce rate means longer marriages. According to the new census data, the median duration of current marriages in the U.S. has increased almost one year in the recent decade, from 19 years to uh, 19.8 years in 2019. The drop in the divorce rate is likely to continue in 2020, despite the pandemic. When COVID-19 hit, early signs suggested that the pandemic 
may have expedited divorces because of lockdown-related stress. You and I mm -hmm. talked about that a lot. Right. However, new survey data finds that the pandemic has actually brought some couples closer to each other. According to data from American Family Survey, a majority of Americans, married Americans, 58%, say that the pandemic has made them appreciate their spouse more and half agree that their commitment to marriage has deepened. Moreover, initial data from some states suggest that divorce filings have indeed declined. This is great news for Americans who are married. It means that their marriages will likely be more stable and their children will be more likely to grow up with two married parents, which provides them the best chance for success later in life. Even so, fewer Americans are married today to reap the benefits associated with marriage. Another piece of news coming out of the new census is the U.S. marriage rate just hit an all-time low in 2019. For every 1,000 unmarried adults in 2019, only 33 got married. This number was 35 a decade ago and 86 in 1970. So, all right, let me pause there. A lot of numbers, a lot of numbers about divorce rates, marriage rates, all that. What do you do with this? Good news. Uh, and also just what do you do with all these numbers? Yeah, I, I think it is uh, ultimately encouraging, I think. It is pretty interesting because in the second hour, uh, we have a guest who just wrote a book on singleness. So that's it, right. I almost want to ask her some of these questions. Like, what is how, how does she perceive some of this? Um, I'm not surprised by the uh, the drop in the marriage rate in general. That that doesn't surprise me. I am yeah. encouraged because I, I do remember even probably a month or two into the pandemic, we were we were reading a number of articles about. The, the fear that a lot of experts were having with regards to um, domestic violence, which, you know, a lot of people going to a job or whatever was like their only escape in some of these situations and the increased stress and the friction. And, you know, so the, the fact that we are at least reading some data that uh, proposes that this really, really bizarre year in a lot of cases has brought people much closer together. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, I think ultimately, I'm encouraged by it. Yeah. I'm always like a little, a little suspicious of like, all right, well, what's the, what's the other side of this coin? The, what's the, what's the shadow side, the, the dark underbelly. I think like it ends by saying, you know, the sobering news about marriage puts a damper on our hope for the future of American families. That's exactly what I was thinking. If marriage just keeps going down and I was talking about a little earlier, the, the marriage divide college educated mm -hmm. and economically better off Americans are more likely to that. marry and stay married. Yeah. Uh, but working class and poor Americans face more family instability and higher levels of singleness. Uh, you were going to weigh in there. You, you found that part surprising? Fascinating. I didn't realize it was that big of a gap. Like you said, the top third income bracket, 64% are in intact marriages. When you go to the lower third, only 24% of Americans are in an intact marriage bracket. And and I don't know if that has to do with just uh, the, the stresses of money, um, whatever else it might be. I I didn't that one of all of all the stats in this article, that one surprised me. And I didn't have hmm. a great finger as to like, here's the read. Do you have a guess as to why that would be? I, I don't really even have a guess as to what that would be. about. I, yeah, I have some guesses. I think. Um, uh, I mean, anecdotally, if you are better off economically, educationally, you probably can even afford things that decrease stress like regular date nights or vacations or in some cases mm. you know house cleaners or you know i mean there's just a there's a, a greater, a greater yeah. cushion yeah counseling i mean i know that we're not supposed to talk about him anymore louis ck actually has a, a bit where he talks about um the the difficulty that his mom had raising him and how he's trying to do it you know better trying to do it differently 
but then how he also says he's like but i'm also insanely rich so i'm realizing that like the environment <laughs> and the 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 things afforded to me to yeah. cushion the stress that my mom was constantly having to juggle trying to raise me he's like totally different planets so you know it was he was kind of like letting his mom off the hook he's like i i could buy whatever i need for the at, any, at the drop of a hat and that certainly has some benefits in how you know how I'm able to maintain my patience with my kids or think long-term about things. Like, yeah, I mean, that's the, you know, you talked about the economic side, but I think the, the education side also um, not in every case, but certainly helps someone be more f- future oriented. I think, I think education is tied to that. And uh, if you're unable to imagine a, a better future, that also can lead to stress and despondency. And I, I imagine that's probably another, another factor there. Yeah. Yeah. Those are good. Uh, all right. So put on your pastor hat here. Um, as we talk about marriage, what if there's someone listening right now who's going, you know what? Uh, I hear your stats. COVID has just made my marriage really hard. It's full of stress. I think I might become one of these statistics. I might want to get out. What's maybe a word of encouragement or uh, advice is the wrong word, but just some counsel. Maybe you'd give to somebody. Uh, obviously, you don't know their situation, but but if they're going, hey, you know what? I'm breaking. Our marriage is just worn thin what what would you say to somebody who might be feeling that way right now well i i, I think it's interesting that you use the word counsel because my advice would be to seek counseling like that's <laughs> that I, yeah. I mean it is i just think it's so valuable and there's so many places uh that you can get cheap or free therapy or counseling it's i, I realize that can sometimes be really difficult if you know if not both of you are interested in that but i i think it's at the very least if you find brian and i in any way trustworthy like it is it's worth the investment. It's worth the sacrifice. And I think now more than ever, um, give yourself some grace that we're all experiencing, you know, just this unthinkable grief and trauma and weirdness of the year. Like it makes sense that you'd mm-hmm. be feeling more stressed than usual. It makes sense that you've, you've never felt like giving up more, like just to affirm, like, yeah, the world's insane. Like that's <laughs> like, give yourself some grace to feel that. And then, and then seek the help you need. And obviously talk to your pastors or your trusted friends, but I really, really do value. And I, I hope that Christians continue to trend in this, in this direction. Uh, the help of professional mental health experts, I think is just invaluable. And, mm-hmm. you know, I would really encourage you to find a Christian one. I think that's important too. Yeah. 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 And I would, I, I would say just don't give up like that. And one way to do that is go get the counseling or to open up to a friend or to tell your spouse how you're feeling. Uh, but I think you you are right to say, hey, this has been an extremely stressful time. And yeah. I'm actually surprised that that their findings are that marriages aren't falling apart. But right. I'm sure there are marriages falling apart right now mm-hmm. uh, because of all the stresses, financial stresses and being home stresses and, and everything else. So uh, I think uh, Ian gave you some good counsel there uh, and go go find a good Christian counselor. If you want to reach out to us, you can always do that on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And we'd be glad to be any help that we can be uh, well, along those same lines of the pandemic at the Wall Street Journal had an interesting article this week that said companies offer creative solutions to worker burnout during the pandemic. We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really excited to have you with us today. Thanks for joining us. My favorite part of the show, what are the holidays of the day? 
do feel like you're patronizing me, but no, I'm I, not. <laughs> I, I will take it anyway. It's funny that this is your favorite part of the show because I think we've stumbled across my favorite holiday thus far. Um, okay, I'll share with you two others first, and then maybe my favorite. So it is National French Dip Day. Uh, I had one yesterday at our lunch meeting. Oh, <laughs> yes, I that's right. That's right. I should have waited. I should have waited. waited a day. <laughs> yeah, I think they're free across the world. Um, <laughs> I nat- love a good French dip. National Chicken Soup for the Soul Day. Oh, the book. Okay. Uh, but then, drum roll, please. Maybe I'm my ready. favorite to date. <laughs> <laughs> You're laughing. I'm ready. <laughs> I can't believe this is a day. National Pizza with the Works except Anchovies Day. <laughs> <laughs> Pizza with the words. Except anchovies. Someone's just punking us now. (laughs) Uh, Right. Yeah. Someone just punching these in. Like, all right, Carl, throw another one in there. National Pizza with the Works, except Anchovies Day. That cracks me up so much for some reason. Not even the holidays like anchovies. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, anchovies. Oh, man. You're out. (laughs) Just way too easily entertained. That's a funny one. That's a good one. Uh, All righty. At the Wall Street Journal, something you and I have talked a lot about is. Uh, you know, everything about the pandemic, whether it be uh, stress in marriage that we just talked about last segment, but this one specifically is about what is being done with workers who are just burning out during this pandemic. Mm-hmm. So it says companies offer creative solutions to worker burnout during the pandemic. It says then from surprise days off to 30 hour work weeks, managers are devising ways to help employees how are you really, really doing? Why don't you give us get us into this article here? I would love to. A few months into the pandemic, Nick Popoff, which is a great name, let his That's guard down name. in an all-hands video call and said aloud what many had been experiencing. He felt burned out. Some weeks, the engineering director at ticketing company Eventbrite uh, Incorporated didn't leave his house for days, he said. Slack notifications buzzed constantly. He missed seeing friends and colleagues in person, even a hike with his wife through Northern California's Redwoods, didn't leave him sufficiently recharged. Work burnout is insidious. It's not just like a red light that comes on, Mr. Popoff says. Mr. Popoff's even better. Uh, <laughs> it's something it's like that, a Dr. Seuss book, right? That's right. It's something that very slowly starts to happen, and that's how it can catch people by surprise. This is sort of the uh, boiling a frog analogy. After mm-hmm. Mr. Popoff shared his experience in the meeting, colleagues came forward saying that they too felt exhausted by work and life in a pandemic. Mr. Popoff began leading quote, recognizing burnout sessions for other employees, giving staffers a forum to voice their feelings and to hear advice from mental health professionals about how to cope. Pause. That's a great idea. Yes. Yes. Recognizing burnout sessions and inviting mental health professionals to speak to that. Brilliant. Good for you. Yeah. The effort is one of the many experiments afoot in corporate America as bosses stare at a sea of faces on Zoom and worry, which again, I guess I take some hope in. I'm, I'm glad that like this article really seems to think that the vast majority of bosses in corporate America even care. Like, I I don't know. I find that encouraging. Uh, with no end to the pandemic in sight, managers say many remote employees, uh, employees report feeling depressed, fed up, and wary of what's next. Companies are adapting policies and rushing to roll out benefits to head off a surge of employee distress. There's this second wave upon us where people are feeling super anxious and that this is the new normal, and how much longer can we sustain this? Have you felt that or heard that from your team at all, Brian? I have yeah. like this, uh, uh, man, this is still going on. This just the loss of the normalcy. I think now with kids leaving, getting pulled out of school again, I was just kind of having this talk with Scott 
uh, our other pastor just today. And we were both just kind of like, had like kind of like this, yeah, I'm, I'm doing well, but I feel tired and just trying to figure out what all this is. So yeah, this is pretty timely actually. Well, so why don't you, uh, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of text here. What are, what are some of the ideas that people are are implementing? Yeah. Shortening up the work week. So like they said yep. earlier, the 30 hour work week, uh, but also, like you said, giving people resources, I think is really interesting. Um, but, but to, to that 30 hour work week, and they said with a small pay cut while returning their, uh, full benefits. So that's his fidelity investments. It says they piloted a program for a small portion of their workforce in which an employee can opt to work 30 hours a week with a small pay cut while retaining their full benefits. Uh, and Fidelity plans to hire more people to pick up the work so that colleagues aren't overwhelmed. I think it's just a recognition that uh, that we're all working really differently now and that we don't know what the uh, outcome is going to be, right? Like yeah. staring at Zoom all day. Um, it, it, I That story of Mr. Popoff earlier. Uh, oh, no, Mr. Popoff. <laughs> it probably uh, is I, closer to that. He, probably right. It probably is Popoff. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting because think about what else you would probably do in your office or with your team. You'd have scheduled like, you know, maybe a quarterly where everybody goes to lunch or a staff retreat where you yeah, go right. do something fun. All of those things are gone right now. Uh, and yeah, you can try stuff online or this and that. But um, and so just I think this is really smart for bosses to try to get ahead of it and say, all right, what do my people need, right? What do they, how can we still have team bonding? How can we do this? And so the article actually ends by saying uh, what companies can do to curb staff burnout. They give a couple different action steps as encourage employees to take time off. Some companies offer bonus self-care days or end work a few hours early. Two, expand access to counseling, what we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. mental health services. Employers have rolled out digital counseling apps or brought on coordinators to help employees access care. Three, ask managers to check in on individuals' well-being. Even simple gestures like a phone call instead of an email can go a long way. Mm -hmm. uh, four, offer training for managers on supervising with empathy. Isn't that a good one? Yeah. Uh, overseeing employees in a pandemic is a new skill. So guidance on supporting colleagues' mental well-being can help. Uh, the next one's foster dialogue where workers can share genuine emotions. Asking how are you isn't enough probe to get a sense for people's real situation. And mm -hmm. so I think this is fascinating because a lot of times, you know, you think of managers, they're just trying to drive for the next dollar or whatever, next program at a church, or whatever. But this is saying, this is a season where you've got to really be tuned into your people yeah. and and be going that extra step. Or the flip side is you're going to have burnout and you're going to lose people. They're going to kind of crack. And so I find this really helpful. And I do think the longer this goes, I mean, man, eight months now we're at this eight months since uh, kind of everything changed with the pandemic. Uh, I think like you and I've been talking, a lot of mental health issues come in in kids and adults. But I do think around work, I just think there's going to be uh, people just kind of checking out, like just burned out, I think. And, and so I do uh, I, I do believe that this is just something we have to continue to talk about and realize everyone just has to realize this is just different than anything we were ever used to before. Well, and it, it is interesting to me that, I mean, we've done a couple of stories like this over the years where it's trying to elevate the significance of what companies have often referred to as soft skills. I'm thinking of one that we did, it was probably a year ago now, where the, the the author was sort of asserting like 
soft skills are actually the new essential skills. Like the, you know, the things that you just listed, uh, encourage, expand, ask, offer, foster. I, I think those to some people's sensibility are like, ow, but that's like if you have time, right? But like ultimately the the task is moving units, you know. Um, I I think a lot of what we're finding now, and maybe ultimately, you know, and more companies are waking up to this because we're all kind of in this together to some degree, are realizing that like, man, learning like real true empathy and not something not patronizing employees or like, ah, here's the here's the token one day a year where we get to ask mm-hmm. whatever we want, you know, but like doing it in a way that is holistic and, and genuine and sustainable, uh, I think is, I think is really, really important. And ho- hopefully we, you know, we, we can talk about this a decade from now and say, this was like a shift in American workforce where we started actually taking some of these things more seriously. Yeah. So hopefully these articles are helpful for you, whether it's, we're talking about marriage in the pandemic or work in the pandemic and uh, get you thinking. And if you need to talk to somebody, make sure uh, to do that. And if you're a boss, I would encourage you to read this article at the Wall Street Journal. We have it up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next, article from NBC News, something interesting happening on the internet these days. That could be a lot of things. We're going to talk about one thing in specific next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. up this hour, a change that's been happening on social media. And then we're joined by author Neri Morris. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. So the question is, uh, what's the kind of the next iteration of social media, not just all the internet, but social media, I think we're starting to get a feel for it uh, coming out of the election right now. So this is at NBC News. And it is a play it is about a new website or newish, it's not that new called Parler. Uh, And the, the article begins this way or is headlined this way, a Twitter for conservatives, Parler surges amid election misinformation crackdown. Let me read a little bit of this. Okay. As Twitter labeled tweet after tweet from President Trump in recent days, some conservatives decided they've had enough. Trump needs to get active on Parler. They won't censor him there, said one reader. So long, Twitter friends, exiting all big techs and switching to Parler, wrote another. And there were plenty more. Distrust of the major social media platforms among some Trump supporters came to a boil around the election as Twitter and Facebook, already targets of complaints against uh, liberal bias, began uh, to take swift and severe action on election-related misinformation. More than a few Republican politicians echoed the sentiments. And so many of them have joined Parler. What is Parler? It's a Twitter-like social media platform that has for two years been a minor destination for conservative politicians and media figures. Like other social media apps, Parler has a feed of posts to scroll through. Posts can be a thousand characters and include links and photos, Users follow one another, as well as explore a discovery news tab, which was dominated Tuesday by allegations of election fraud. Its community guidelines fit onto a few pages and address the most uh, basic content problems, criminal activity and spam. Now, Parler is surging. 
It sits atop the charts of app stores, boosted in large part by supporters who agree with Trump's decision to continue fighting the election, the results of the election in the courts and on the Internet. Twitter declined to comment on the growth of Parler. And while Parler is far from the first social media platform to cater to users who feel that policies regulating hate speech, harassment and disinformation have gone too far. It's embraced by prominent conservatives and its sudden influx of users hint at a once informal online dynamic that has recently become more official. There's now the blue Internet and the red Internet. All right. Going to stop there. I find this. I didn't know of Parler until I read this. Uh, But later on the article, it's going to talk about how Parler has gone from like four million users to nine million users since the election. Uh, And that this is kind of where especially a lot of President Trump's. Uh, most ardent supporters and the people most likely to believe that there's election uh, nefarious stuff has gone on are going to. But I I want you to weigh in on what they said there, that we are quickly moving towards a red Internet in a blue Internet, the same way we have conservative talk radio and liberal talk radio and conservative cable news uh, and liberal cable news. But now to have it kind of on our social media and that kind of separation happened is kind of a, a kind of a big new step. I think it, it doesn't surprise me though. I, to me, I think this, I have felt that this is inevitable. Like you mentioned, we have talk radio that caters to our leanings. We have television stations that cater to our leanings like that. This to me was the next like logical step. I will say anecdotally. So what you're talking about parlor spelled ER. um, I also read elsewhere that a lot of people accidentally have been visiting parlor spelled or like the word. And uh, okay. I believe that's a pornography site. So there's, Stop. I guess just influx. Yeah. Cause people are hearing, Oh, join parlor, join parlor. People are like, okie doke. And that's where they're, <laughs> that's where they're ending up. So that's not the point of this segment, but that is certainly <laughs> a, a sub point. Be careful if you're going to go check right. it out. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Well, and part of what you were saying too, even about, you know, after you watch social dilemma, there is, I mean, even in a place like Facebook, like we think, I think most people are wise to the algorithms that are happening. You're not seeing all of your friend stuff, not right. even close. There's algorithms that are deciding what you do and don't see. And, you know, they're they're pushing those because for whatever reason, they think those will get the most engagement from you. There's a couple of different categories of engagement. There's obviously positive engagement, like pictures of babies. Everyone, everyone loves pictures of babies. And there's obviously negative engagement, like this guy always argues with this guy. I'm going to make sure they see each other's posts all the time. So it's not <laughs> just one or the other, but it's certainly not uh, unbiased at all. So it, it does kind of make sense to me that people would say, you know what? I'm tired of either being duped over here or being controlled over there or being censored over here. Let's let's find a play. And I again, we'll see how long that lasts. Like if you remember, not with the same kind of gusto, but that's sort of what YouTube started off as. It was supposed to be just this really impartial upload your videos, have fun. And then, you know, money gets involved and then there was ads. And now there's like certain videos that are suggested to you afterwards based on algorithms and research. And I get it. I, you know, it it's a company that whatever. But mm-hmm. uh, a lot of things I do think start off with this level of pure intent. And then that tends to spiral in some direction unintended eventually. But this as a move to me, doesn't surprise me. It is part of what I think is really concerning about some of the divide that, you know, you and I are talking about all the time, our inability to really hold space for people uh, 
different than us politically, theologically. Yeah. And if we just kind of hunker down more and more in our echo chambers like that, that concerns me for sure. Well, speak to that a little bit more. My next question to you is going to be like, could you make an argument that this is a good thing that, hey, let's get the people into their, you know, we, we always bemoan all the arguing and all this going on online. All right, just go be with your people. Is there anything good about this? Uh, or is this primarily dangerous and a bad kind of trajectory that we're on now with social media? I think that there could be some. I mean, because there's no there's nothing in Parler's terms of agreements that I, I think is, oh, you have to have voted this way mm-hmm. uh, in order to be it. That's that's often how it's being spun right now. I don't think that's I don't think that's true. So you're you're still going to have, I think, at least some diversity of opinion. But like in a, in a much more benign sense, you know, you and I will often talk about the value of having other pastor friends, right? Because mm-hmm. there is just something that other pastors get. Like when you're, it could be a total stranger, but it's like, you're also a local church pastor. We just get each other in a way that, you know, maybe people from other professions don't, even if they're lifelong friends. So I think in that sense, it can be helpful if you, you get a group of people together, like, oh, we get each other. We think about even like, you know, grief care, things like that. Like you get people, like everyone's walked through a similar tragedy that can be really, really helpful. So I think that there can be, value to a point it just feels like we're already so segmented there's already such harsh division to like keep hunkering down that trail feels like it could be problematic but yeah i'm also not so naive to think that like twitter and facebook have probably manipulated more than any of us even realize and i don't want to be a part of that either so i i i do kind of understand some of it yeah the move is to just unplug (laughs) yeah right (laughs) yeah move move to the mountains right one last thing from this article, they talk about the people who've moved to parlor, who are kind of the big people. And they, they used a uh, conservative celebrity, Scott Bayo. Scott Bayo still a celebrity in your book. I mean, does he ever become not a celebrity? I don't Happy I mean, days, I guess he was chachi. Macaulay Culkin's still a celebrity. He hasn't done anything since he was eight. Like, I think that's still right. <laughs> that's a good call. I think All right, yeah, we'll give there's... we'll give chachi celebrity status. Still. I'm glad we ended on that note. Thank you. Coming up next, we're excited to be joined by Arthur, author (laughs) Neri Morris. Come back and join us next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for joining us today. And we are thrilled to be joined all the way from Australia. I'm not sure we've ever had anybody calling in from Australia, but to be joined by Neri Morris. Neri is the author of a book called Single Me, Learning to, uh, Learning to Love the Unwanted Path of Singleness. Neri, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. We were just joking off the air that uh, that it's in the future where you are. Friday morning right now, that you're calling yeah. us from. <laughs> Bright and early, 8.30 Friday morning. So I've had my coffee and my smashed avo, and I'm talking to you from the future. <laughs> there you go. We appreciate that. <laughs> hey, why don't you, uh, besides we know that you're from Australia, why don't you just introduce yourself to our audience however you'd like. Sure. Well, yes, my name's Neri. Um, and yeah, I Single Me is my actual first book that I've written and released this year, which has been an exciting achievement to um, yeah, to achieve this year in the middle of COVID. Um, but outside of that, I am an entrepreneur. I own an ethical online fashion marketplace called Thread Harvest. And I also work for a uh, not-for-profit doing comms and marketing. So I do a little bit of everything throughout my week. Well, Neri, I'm I'm particularly interested in this book, and we're going to talk about another book you have coming out uh, early 2021. But 
I, I actually got married a bit later in life, and I began to notice that before I was married, I, I was getting invited to speak places, but only on singleness. Like, that became – I was like, wait a minute. Am I the single guy now? Like, <laughs> and, I, and I was I would ask people why, and they're like, because – we don't know how to talk about it. We don't know what books even point people towards. So you, you know, took it up a whole other notch and wrote a book about it. I'd love to know, first and foremost, why did you feel inspired to write a book about singleness? Uh, because I am single. Um, so that was um, heavily influenced my decision to do it. Um, but a lot of it was kind of based around looking at the market and going, I am a single Christian woman in my thirties and there's books out there that are telling me how to get out of being single. They're telling me all about dating, so many books out there about marriage, but there's not a lot out there that speaks to my actual situation, which is, you know, I grew up in the Christian context. Um, and when you do that, certainly growing up in the church, you have this almost like this unspoken playbook that is given to you and it's that you know you get to your early 20s you're gonna meet someone you're gonna get married you're gonna have some kids you're gonna realize your calling and then you're gonna do that for the rest of your life and you'll be sweet that's kind of how it works mm -hmm. and I grew up expecting that I had um, plans that I was going to get married at 22 um, although I had no boyfriend to speak of at 22 when I arrived <laughs> at that point so um, if that's an indication of where my head was at um and I, yeah, I entered my thirties, not wanting to be single, but was, and thought, well, I need to kind of think about, um, or see what God has for me here in my thirties and being single. Cause, uh, I'm not the only one I'm seeing a lot of people around me in this situation and this level of disillusionment around our lives, not playing out the way that we, um, I guess had thought they would. Mm. So I, felt inspired to write something that I would want to read in my current context that wasn't another, here's your 12 steps on how to do this or how to do that, because there's just so much of that out there. Uh, what I wanted to do was to share story and experience and go, this is what I've experienced. This is what I've learned. And I just want to share it with you in the hopes that it connects with you, that it might encourage you, that um, it raises um, the level of conversation around singleness within the church because there's a lot of single people mm -hmm. in the church context and we just don't know how to support and love them well. Right. So mm -hmm. that was really the reason why. Yeah. I would love to hone in first on the positive part. What is, uh, what's great? What's, what's good about being single for you? <laughs> um, I can sleep diagonally in my bed. <laughs> uh, I, can, <laughs> I can wake up without little feet in my face. I can sleep through the night. I can travel whenever I want to travel. Yeah. I can spend my money on whatever I want to spend it on. Um, I can have a whole day sitting on the couch and watch whatever I want and no one can, you know, complain or tell me otherwise. So there's lots of, um, I guess the freedom aspect really is one of the big benefits of being single. Mm -hmm. You've got the freedom to do what you want, when you want. Um, and that's, yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest perks. Yeah. What, what are some of the difficulties? Because even the, the subheading for your book is learning to love the unwanted path of singleness, which I, mm -hmm. I so appreciate even just putting that in the title, like, Hey, just so you're all clear, this isn't something that I like prayed for and dreamt up and now I'm living it. You're like I didn't want this. Well, what's some of the, what's some of the difficult parts? I think the difficulties, um, 
that exist within Zigonus are varied. Um, you've got things like having to try and have conversations about your friend's children when you've got no sense of reference. You know, you can't, um, and you, you do kind of get over talking about your your friend's kids' sleeping patterns or their bathroom, you know, mishaps and things like that. Um, so in those moments, it's hard at times to show up and be present and feel like you've got something to contribute to a conversation that is centering around parenting or marriage. Um, I think the other thing is that's difficult about being single is the lonely moments. Um, like one of the things that I certainly experienced with releasing this book was I was hitting these like little milestones, like finishing my first manuscript and mm. um, getting it back from the editor and receiving my first printed copy, like all these beautiful, wonderful milestones. But there was no one there to turn to um, in terms of that really close relationship. I had wonderful friends, but um, in that kind of spouse relationship to go, I did a thing. Can we celebrate for a moment? Like, mm. can we go to dinner tonight and just like, you know, crack open a bottle of champagne and celebrate um, what I've been able to achieve. And so there's moments where it's like you want to have that person to turn to, to, you know, cry on their shoulder, to, you know, high five, to have those those moments with and they're not there. Um, and so you have to really learn to celebrate yourself and to invite your friends into that and, you know, I have some wonderful friends that show up for me a lot and um, celebrate these things with me. Um, so I'm really blessed in that sense. But there's moments where it's hard because it's like, oh, right. well, I feel like I want to turn to a spouse to be like, hey, and That's you're right. not there. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, and, and as you've been really honest and open with it, what's been uh, the feedback or or what's been – uh, particularly from married people, friends of yours or within the church as people have read your book? Um, I think married couples were probably, because the book is definitely written for singles and their married friends and family. Um, I have a chapter actually dedicated to married people. There's a letter in there that I've basically said, look, I'm going to kind of tell you all the things that your single friends probably won't say to your face. <laughs> so here you go. And in grace and love and for the, from the desire of wanting you to be equipped to support your single friends well, I write this letter. Um, I think the most interesting response has been um, people finding connection in their own individual unwanted parts. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I didn't expect that. I, I thought they'd be like, oh, that's been helpful, you know, and, and that has been some of the feedback. Thank you. I feel like I understand my single friends more and, and that's been great, but what I've really noticed from married people is like, oh, I connect on the unwanted path because mm. I've had, you know, there could be um, fertility issues in a marriage. Mm. That's an unwanted path. Mm. There could be um, divorce or um, domestic violence or something like anything that yeah. kind of is an unwanted path. We all have them. And in that respect, people, um, of, no matter what their marital status is, are, is connecting with the, the context of the book. Um, so yeah, so married couples have been really positive, but I think that's probably been the most interesting, um, feedback. We, we often hear Ian and I are both pastors, right? And, and we often hear that churches could do such a better job with the single people. I live, we're out in the suburbs, lots of married people. What are some specific things that you wish churches would do better or pastors would know, uh, about how to, uh, about this, uh, issue that you're talking about of singleness? Yeah, that's a really good question. And 
Um, I do cover this in a chapter in the book um, called The Church's Idol of Marriage, which um, is, you know, a bit of a, I guess, a strong chapter title, but with intention because I feel as though uh, the church is very geared towards married people and marriage, and that's wonderful. And I'm not at all saying that um, churches shouldn't care for their married uh, congregation members. Um, I think, though, unfortunately, because there's such a heavy bent towards the celebration of marriage, so you've got things like you have a a children's and families pastor um, or you'll have marriage courses or you'll have parenting courses or someone gets engaged and we ask them to stand up and we applaud them and all those things are wonderful and amazing but there is no other, like there's no um, alternative for single people and Mm. um, there's no, and I'm not at all saying that if someone becomes newly single, you should ask them to stand and we applaud them. (laughs) I'm not saying that at all, (laughs) just simply highlighting. Um, But I think, you know, what I really wanted to achieve with this particular chapter was to raise the awareness that singleness is very much a part of any congregation out there, particularly when you've got, you know, stats around um, 50% of marriages ending in divorce. Um, you've got a whole realm of, um, you know, individuals wrestling with their sexual orientation and how do they, you know, navigate that with faith. Um, you've got widowers, like there's a, a plethora of reasons as to why someone is single within a congregation, but there's this, there's no real support. It's, it's almost like singleness is relegated to the young adults pastor because right. that they're the only single people. And in actual fact, that's totally incorrect. Um, There are so many, and we're getting married later, so there's so many single people in any church context. And um, my hope has really been just to kind of go, hey, church, I I don't have the answers. I'm not going to sit here and say, well, you need to run this program and do this and do that. What I really want to do, what I really hope pastors like yourselves would take from that chapter is to go, okay, I now am more aware that there are single people in my congregation and maybe I need to go and have some conversations with them about what they think our church could be doing to support them. And it's, it's about having a conversation because um, I think that any sort of solution uh, that the church, any individual church arrives at needs to be this. Okay. So what's, what's inclusive of everyone? Um, Singleness is not just not yet married. So how do we, you know, catered to divorcees, widowers, right. the LGBTQI community, um, you know, the not yet marrieds for all the reasons that anyone could be single. Mm-hmm. There's, yeah, there's, I just don't think there's a one size fits all answer of like run this program or do this, but I think it's about starting to have the conversation. I think that's really good. One of the things that I was noticing too in, in these opportunities to speak is that so often the the church kind of treated singleness like it was a waiting room, you know, like you're, yeah. you're like, junior varsity to the varsity of being married, <laughs> you'll get yeah. your shot. Like it's singleness isn't a pre-married or post-married state. And, it, you know, to make a theological case, even I've often heard churches sort of belittle singleness. Like, Hey, once you, once you've figured this out, then the church can use you. And I was like, what about Jesus? Mm. The apostle Paul, like these yeah. single people. And one of the things that I would often say is in Genesis, it says the two shall become one, not the have shall become a whole. Like mm. marriage doesn't, make you hold Jesus does. And and the church, I think desperately needs to get that right. I, and I would love for you to take just a minute or two and off, offer some encouragement, just some words of hope to someone listening who is single, maybe by choice, but maybe 
it, like like you're the unwanted path. They're listening right now. Could you just speak some some words of life to that person? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I've certainly had to go on a journey of learning to love um, where I am at. And and you're, you're right, Ian, and it, singleness is not about a waiting room. And that's, I talk about loving the unwanted path because it is lovable. It is possible to mm. love where you are. And I have found the way to do that is through surrender. It's really coming back and going, putting my faith in a good God who promises good things to me um, and trusting that the way he has my life unfold is going to be for my good and for the good that of, of the world and according to what he's um, calling me to do on this earth. And so I, it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing because you've got this tension of, the hope for not yet, um, for what, for what you're hoping for and where you are now. And the way to balance that is through surrender. So if there's any message that I want any single person to take away from this book, it is learning to surrender, to be able to hold in one hand, the not yet. And in the other hand, acknowledge the now and embrace the now because it isn't a waiting room. It isn't about becoming your whole self when you get married or your life starting when you get married, like your life is right now, embrace it right now. You can experience all the joy or the love or the hope and the happiness that you think you're going to get when you're married right now. Emotion is not tied to an experience. So that's good. Yeah. But uh, before we let you go, I do want to talk about your other book you have coming out called Fortified coming out in early 2021. That's your first fiction novel. Uh, why don't you tell us uh, about this book, Fortified? Yeah, so Fortified is based on the story of Rahab, and it's the first in a series of five books about uh, the single women of the Bible and what they were able to achieve because they were single. So um, this idea came about when I was looking at the story of Rahab, and I thought if she was married, there's no way those she would have ever been in a position to you know, um, hide those spies or anything like that. Um, and I thought, wow, like she was able to achieve so much just because she, well, because she was single. So that sparked this idea. And instead of just retelling the story of Rahab, I brought it forward into a more modern day context. So uh, this one's set in 1945, Dresden, Germany. So the middle of World War II. And uh, the main character's name is Ava. And it's filled with, you know, the story, what Rahab has, so it's brothels and um, spies and all the good stuff of the Bible um, is in there. And, uh, yeah, so it's coming out in early 2021, and then that's uh, the next one after that's actually going to be based on Lydia, and that'll be in the 60s, and I'm currently writing that one at the moment. So I just wanted to, I guess, speaking to that space of singleness um, in a fiction way and in a different way, um, not just, you know, retelling the story, but doing yeah. it a bit differently. So, yeah. Oh, I love that. Mary, it has been such a joy having you on the show. I, I think you're great. Thank it's been so cool to see you. the ways that the Lord has been working in and through you. You're doing so many cool things right now. I would love for people to know how can they learn more about you or your books or the company you work with or just hit us with all of that stuff. Okay. I hope you've got a pen or your phone. Uh, so you can check out uh, me and, and my uh, work at marymorris.com. Uh, if you'd like to order a copy of Single Me, you can get that from Amazon in the States. It's available both in ebook and print for you guys. So head on over there to pick up a copy of that. And uh, if you want to check out Thread Harvest, uh, threadharvest.com.au. 
And yeah, sign up to my mailing list and I'll tell you when Fortified's due. Right on. Awesome. Neri Morris, again, the author of Single Me, Learning to Love the Unwanted Path of Singleness. And her, her other book, Fortified, coming out in 2021. You can find her at Neri Morris, N-E-R-I Morris.com. Neri, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for calling from the future in Australia. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's been so Good. fun. So Thanks. Glad. Have a great day. Me anyway, too. you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for being with us today. You know, I found her to be delightful and it, that kind of uh, that much time change really does kind of mess with my head a little bit. She's like, oh, it's Friday morning here in Australia. I'm eating breakfast. I don't know if that messes with you, but like, hey, what do you mean? I have a hard time getting think? my mind around that. What? No, you don't. Are you serious? I, no, no, I know. I, I know in my mind, but it's just like weird to think like, <laughs> oh, it's Friday morning where you are. <laughs> like, I get the concept of time change. Okay. That doesn't confuse me, but. Like the fact she she was like, oh, I'm eating breakfast right now. It was just a weird, weird deal. So. Yeah, that's crazy, man. <laughs> <laughs> Did not anticipate this segment starting this way. <laughs> no, no. Well, and that portion, that portion. But anyway, if you miss Neri, she was great talking about singleness awesome. and yeah. the church and also her new uh, book, uh, a novel coming out called Fortified. Uh, really pleasant, uh, really enjoyable to talk to you. So I wanted to end the, the show uh, with a guy who's, blog that we've talked about a lot from the French press, that being David French. And uh, he has written a lot lately, particularly uh, around um, just kind of the tension and the stress we all feel around the election. He was writing a lot before the election. Uh, He uh, he came out as very uh, anti-Trump. Uh, but not real thrilled about Biden. And so he was getting a lot of fire from both sides. So we've read a bunch of French's stuff. But on November 8th, so just a couple of days ago, he wrote this. May God bless President Biden. The church has another chance to resist the partisan poll. I know this is long, but why don't you get us into it? And we'll we'll talk about what French is talking now, about. Now, it's pretty wild that this was uh, published November 8th because of what the next line says. Um then again, maybe he was writing it from Australia. It says at 7.33 a.m. on November 9th, 2016. I'm just kidding. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I pub- he wrote from Australia. That was a good one. Good one. <laughs> uh, I published a short, uh, a short post at National Review called May God Bless President Trump. It caused a few readers to do a double take. Wait, weren't you never Trump? Didn't you oppose him so much that you almost launched a third party run against him? Yes and yes. But as a Christian believer, I also knew two things. First, God was sovereign over the presidential election. Second, it was my obligation to pray for our president. On the first point, the book of Romans contains a sweeping statement about the power of God over human affairs. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The second point is just as clear as Paul told Timothy. I urge them, first of all, that um, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in the godliness, in all godliness and holiness. The belief that God placed Trump in the Oval Office should lead to the same conclusion about Joe Biden. The same fervent Christian prayers for Trump should now be on behalf of the president-elect. Critically, when we pray for a president and his administration, we do not acquiesce in uh, an injustice. Our prayers, our prayers may well represent one of our most effective forms of activism. After all, the book of Proverbs declares that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. 
But beyond our prayers, as Trump's term ends, the church has its own opportunity for a new beginning and perhaps a renewed commitment both to humility and to biblical justice. Deep commitments to partisanship have hindered the church's witness to the world. And I would add, I agree. And so as a new administration begins, I've been thinking through three uncomfortable truths. Before I get to the uncomfortable truths, Brian, mm-hmm. uh, I'm guessing I know the answer to this, but how do, how do you feel about how he, he sets this all up? Very against it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I, you, how many talks did we have pre-election too, with all the people of like, uh, especially people on the right going, Hey, we have to be praying for the president and this, that and we said, I love that. But, but if, if we, we need to do that regardless of who's in office. And I really appreciate friends saying, Hey, when Trump won, I wrote an article called, uh, may God bless president Trump. And now Biden wins. May God pre- bless president. Uh, may God bless president Biden. And the idea that it's our call to be praying uh, even for the uh, presidents that we maybe didn't vote for and maybe don't agree with politically and that uh, that this is a powerful thing that we've been called to do. I really appreciate the people right now who are calling the church and people who are really passionate and passionately partisan uh, to, to back to this idea that we are to be called to be praying for the presidents, the ones that we voted for and the ones that we didn't vote for. So, yeah, I, are you hearing the opposite? Like, I feel like of the vast majority of Christian leaders that I follow or listen to are are doing what French is doing. Are you are you seeing a lot of the the opposite of that? Uh, I would say I'm I'm hearing and seeing a lot of writing of people saying this exact thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not hearing from some of the people I wish I would hear from. Does that make sense? So just sort like of silence personally. Exactly. Yeah. OK. Uh, some of the most vocal people in my Facebook feed say, even if they're not writers and authors, maybe just friends of mine who were like, we must be praying for the president when it was Trump have grown very silent right now mm-hmm. or have grown very remained very partisan. Gotcha. Uh, they've commented very badly on things like this article. And so I'm hoping, uh, like you said, I've read this. I've heard a lot of this and a lot of especially kind of people who are writing. These are the kinds of things we're reading. Um, I think there are there are people in my life that I wish would embody this a little bit more. Right I got gotcha. you. Well, let me let me just quickly share with you the uh, three uncomfortable truths and then you can kind of choose one to hone in on if you want. I think they're pretty good. Uh, he says, knowing God's power is not the same thing as knowing God's purpose. Secondly, God's purposes will not precisely match our partisan interests. And third, our partisan interests sometimes oppose God's purpose. So each of those is pretty charged. And, you know, like you said, it is fairly long. I don't I can't think of a time that we've done a French article on the show and said, (laughs) don't go read it. It's it's garbage. Like, even if you disagree with the man. Uh, I just think he's I, th- I think he's a talented writer. I think he holds thing in, things in tension really well. So is there one of those three in particular that you want to go after? Uh, knowing God's power is not the same thing as knowing God's purpose, I think is a powerful one. He said, as I read through social media, I'm quite frankly appalled at the intensity of the Christian anger and fear at Trump's loss. This is the fruit not just of a constant media diet that so often valorizes Trump and demonizes his opponents, but also of a burning sense in many Christian minds that Trump had a distinct and decisive role to play in American culture and the loss frustrates his presumed purpose. I think that this idea that we don't always know God's purposes, right? Like we shouldn't presume that our purposes and our ideas are his, I think is an important one uh, and one that a lot of people have probably lost sight of these days. So did any of them stick out to you? Yeah, I mean, they all kind of they kind of build on each other. And I think part of what he's it is interesting reading some of the comments on this article 
I, I do find this interesting. This is anecdotal. The disagreements on his blog, at least the ones that are, are actually commented here, a lot of them begin with, David, first and foremost, I want you to know that I really respect you and I appreciate you. I think you really missed the mark here, blah, 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 blah. Like I'm looking at like three to four of them that start by saying, hey, just to say it out loud, I, I want you to know that I really respect you and mm. often agree with you on this issue. I don't. I think that, I don't know, is a testament to his, one, his kind of peacemaking posture, like in holding these sides in tension, but also like his his character and the way that he treats people he disagrees with. And I think that to me is part of what makes the whole of the article compelling because it's not just, you know, he's making like good rational cases for a position or a thought, but that he's, he's doing so in a way that feels even handed, I guess. And an understanding of, of both sides of the coin. That's, that's not really an answer to your question. I just really appreciate that kind of writing um, at a time where like everything just seems vitriolic and intended to divide. I don't know. I did. I, I found that yep. particularly refreshing here. And I think we're purposefully trying to put these in front of people, things like this French article or Mitch album yesterday or other things trying to say, Hey, we, we've got a, uh, we, as the church, as Christ followers have to kind of champion a better thing here, a better way uh, towards unity. And uh, it doesn't mean there won't be disagreement, but, uh, anyway, we would love for you to read this. May God bless President Biden. The church has another chance to resist partisan poll. This is from the French press, uh, David French. We've got this up at our Facebook page. Well, one more day in the week to go. We'll be with you tomorrow from four until six. Ready? Uh, we've got some good things planned for the Friday show. So we hope that you will join us. If you missed any of today's show, go find another podcast wherever it is that you get your podcast. We're excited to be with you tomorrow from four until six. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.